Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When there's a really strong bull market, people tend to think, I just want to own the, the stuff that's going up, the hot area. That's where it is. Uh, and then a bear market comes along and humbles all of us and, and then... People see the, the benefits of a diversification. Morningstar's longtime mutual fund maven, Russ Kennel, on how to choose the best mutual funds for your portfolio. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. One of the most difficult jobs investors face is choosing the best mutual funds to meet their long-term financial goals. It is a daunting task, but it is one this week's guest has dedicated himself to for nearly three decades. Russell Kennel is Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services, a wholly owned subsidiary of Morningstar. He heads the firm's North American Morningstar Analyst Ratings Committees, which vet the Morningstar Medalist Ratings, which we cite often on WealthTrack. He is the editor of the monthly Morningstar Fund Investor newsletter, writes the Fund Spy column for Morningstar.com, and has published numerous studies on the mutual fund industry. As his bio says, quote, since joining Morningstar in 1994, Kindle has analyzed virtually every type of fund and covered the most prominent fund families, end of quote. Now, recently, Kennel published two particularly impactful articles, his very popular annual Thrilling 33 list, which narrows the universe of 15,000 fund share classes to between 25 and 50 funds that meet a few simple and strict criteria, and his review of the top 10 holdings in his personal portfolio. Interestingly, not all are members of the Thrilling 33 list. My first question to him, how does the fund make it onto the Thrilling 33? The, the idea of the Thrilling 33 is just to set a very high, high bar on just a few questions and see, see what comes out. I start with fees because that's the most important always. A fund has to be in the cheapest quintile. Uh, then I move on to manager investment. The manager has to invest over a million dollars of their own money in the fund. Uh, Medalist rating, it has to be bronze or higher. Our medalist ratings are essentially uh, tell you that we think this fund will outperform on a risk-adjusted basis over the long haul, so bronze, silver, or gold. Uh, it has to have an above-average parent rating uh, because the parent company is an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, it can't have a high-risk rating because we think the really volatile higher-risk funds are a lot harder uh, for investors uh, to use well. Uh, and finally, it's got to have a minimum investment of 50000 or less, So, because I don't want to just recommend events of institutional funds for uh, investors that you can't actually get, because that's frustrating. No one likes that. We're still talking about, what, 15,000 different share classes that, that this, and then it, it narrows it down to like 25 to 50 in the 15 years that you've 
had it. Uh, that's incredible. So it's amazing that these criteria are so hard to meet. And I, I was also intrigued by the fact that fees, you said they're the most important. Why are fees, low fees, the most important standard? Well, I, I come at it from two reasons. One is just uh, the reliable, and that is uh, next year might be a growth year, or a, a value year might be a bull market, a bear market. Fees impact every single year. So one fund's charging 40 basis points, another's charging, say, 1.5%. That 40 basis point fund has got a 110 basis point advantage every single year. So uh, it's just consistent, and that compounds over time. And you really see that if you look at over a long time period, uh, fees just are a very good predictor, uh, as Jack, the late Jack Bogle would, of course, tell us uh, and uh, illustrated so well. And then it's just a simple math that, uh, yeah. again, you get the returns after fees, you get the income after fees. And I think one reason it's a little counterintuitive for people is we tend to think, well, the more I pay for a house or a car or a sweater, the better I get. But what you don't necessarily understand is there's economies of scale so that that fund that's charging 50 basis points might actually be taking in more money uh, to, to pay the managers than the one charging 150. Uh, you think of kind of like a, a Toyota or a Ford, they have those economies of scale. And so uh, they can make a, a very good car for $40,000, whereas someone making 50 cars uh, couldn't possibly do that. Russ, I, I'm also intrigued by the uh, the manager must have a million dollars in the fund, um, and I know that you feel very strongly about you know the manager should eat his own cooking. It should be vested uh, with the interest of the shareholders. But wh why is a million kind of the magic number? Um, well, that's the highest the reporting range goes. The SEC oh, okay. set this rule in place 20 years ago, and they picked a million dollars as the highest. If it were up to me, you would simply tell people what, how many shares of the fund the manager owns. Just the way you, with the CEO of a company, we sure. know exactly how many shares they own. The Morningstar Medalist ratings, you oversee the committee that decides on what the medalist ratings are. As you said, the bronze, you know, silver or gold. So um, how are they chosen and how predictive are they of performance? They're chosen based on uh, a mix of fundamental and quantitative factors. Uh, our, we have a, a over 100 analysts worldwide who are uh, evaluating the fund company parent. We often do fund company parent visits. Uh, they're evaluating the manager. They're evaluating the strategy. And so they rate all of those uh, you know, in, in, a, in a fundamental uh, basis. And it's obviously their opinion. And they, they bring all of those to the committees which then vet those to make sure that we're being consistent, that we haven't left any important stones unturned. We want to make sure that uh, all key bases have been covered. Uh, and so that flows through. And then on the quantitative side, we estimate what's the alpha potential for an asset mm -hmm. class. And then we also factor in fees. So we come up, we look at these uh, ratings on, on these pillars, and then we have our alpha factor. And then uh, we subtract fees to come up with uh, the overall rating. And so there's kind of a mix of qualitative and quantitative. How predictive are those of performance, of, are the medalist ratings? Our performance has been pretty good. Uh, mm -hmm. 
not you know it had it not always great, uh, but it but it's been pretty good. You know, it did particularly well in a year like 2022 because we care about uh, risk-adjusted returns. So when right. you have a bear market, you'll see a lot of our highly rated funds holding up better uh, than their peers. Parent pillar, and I know this is something that you emphasize, uh, you know, a lot, and it's one of your criteria. And I was intrigued that that there are uh, several funds that have come up in the thrilling 33, several fund families. And uh, as a matter of fact, 27 of the 33 uh, for the most recent list are from, uh, you know, are the same parent uh, companies. I mean, American Funds, Baird Funds, Dodge and Cox, and Vanguard. So why are the parent companies of these funds so important? For a lot of reasons. Uh, I think when you initially start researching mutual funds, you might just sort of think about this manager and that strategy. Right. But at the longer you spend looking at the industry, you realize that over time, that parent company is really going to have a lot of influence. Uh, and so part of it is setting fees, but even more so, it's about uh, leading uh, the managers, the ethics behind it, but also what's the culture? Do they hire good analysts and managers? Do, are they able to retain them? You mentioned like a Dodge and Cox, they're very mm -hmm. good at retaining people. A Vanguard, obviously a leader on fees and doing what's right uh, for investors. Uh, so really there are a bunch of factors, but at the end of the day, the parent is very important. Another criteria that you mentioned, so the returns greater than the category benchmark um, over the manager's tenure for a minimum of five years. So explain how that works. And when you're talking about a benchmark, I noticed that Morningstar is creating its own benchmarks, and then there are market benchmarks. So which benchmarks are you matching these funds against? Oh, that's a good question. So for each category, we assign a benchmark, uh, which is one of the best fitting benchmarks. Uh, and, and then we compare that fund's returns over the entire tenure of the longest tenured manager on the fund. Okay. So if the longest tenured manager is there 23 years, the fund has to have beaten that benchmark over the whole 23-year span. If it's six years, then it's six years. Uh, but it has to be at least five. So if the manager's uh -huh. only been there three years, then then you can't uh, make it in. And, and the basic reason there is just that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of noise in short-term performance. So long-term performance is a much uh, better measure. 15 years in, what kind of turnover have you had in the thrilling 33? Typically, there's about two to five funds that go in or out in, in any particular year. And mm -hmm. sometimes funds will uh, leave and then come back like... Uh, Fidelity Contra Fund uh, came back in after being out for a couple of years uh, because its fees had, had come down relative to its uh, a peer group. Uh, therefore, there's a fair amount of consistency, especially within uh, those dominant fund companies. So how have the Thrilling 33 done? When you look at that mix of uh, good management, low fees, uh, solid performance, uh, it's not a guarantee that you're going to outperform over the next five or 10 years, but generally you get pretty good results. If we were to look at the Thrilling 33, um, are, are there a, a couple of funds in it that epitomize uh, what it, it represents? Absolutely. Uh, I think of a fund like Dodge and Cox International. Uh, again, it's, uh, they're, they're charging less than, than uh, most, uh, most foreign funds. 
and it, it really is, works into Dodge's wheelhouse, and that is managers and analysts tend to make an entire career there, and so you've just got tremendous stability, and that means that the approach doesn't change, but also the people don't change very much, and they're able to attract really good people so that the fund just is a very uh, great fundamental driven fund. They're, they're just consistent value investors, very much bottom-up investors. And so what I think what, when people envision what is a manager doing when I hire them to pick stocks, it's probably not too far what, from what Dodge and Cox is actually doing. They're mm -hmm. very much digging into all the fundamentals, going out and visiting the fund companies and building a good model and working collaboratively. So the analysts and managers are working together to arrive at a consensus and to build a portfolio of good value stocks. You periodically, every couple of years, publish uh, what you call my top 10 holdings, which is of great interest too. And I did notice that not all of the holdings are members of the Thrilling 33. <laughs> well, how come? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a fair question. Um, no, it is a good question. Uh, well, I would say, first off, all of my holdings are medalists, so that means yes. that they are. Okay. Uh, uh, but also, uh, I tend not to make many changes to my portfolio. So if, for instance, a, a fund slightly fails uh, one of those tests, it might still be a very good fund. It just has fallen out slightly. Uh, also, I think as you uh, want to build a, a, a well-diversified portfolio, there are sometimes entire categories that don't have a single representative in that thrilling 33. So again, uh, if say there's no short-term bond fund or no emerging market stock fund, I still want right. to own one of them. Uh, so philosophically, they're very close. One of your criteria has been to, to have balance between different asset classes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what your approach has been? Absolutely. First off, I'm a bit of a contrarian so that if value or foreign equities are out of favor, I, I tend to think even more highly of them, so I may rebalance into there. So uh, I also just believe in diversification, partly because I think the, the, the underperforming areas are probably have a better chance of outperforming the next time period. But also I recognize that uh, it's very hard to predict. If you look at the history of rallies and bear markets, they often hit one side of the style box a lot harder than the other mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. This year, growth is doing much better than value. Last year, value did much better than growth. Uh, U.S. versus foreign tends to run in 10-year cycles. The last 10 years, the U.S. is dominated. Uh, the next 10, it might be foreign. Uh, I also think fixed income, as I'm getting a little closer to retirement, hate to admit that, but it's true. Uh, you know, fixed income is, is also a valuable thing and you know makes bear markets a little more tolerable. So uh, I think... Diversification uh, is really valuable. When there's a really strong bull market, people tend to think, I just want to own the, the stuff that's going up, the hot area, that's where it is. Right. Uh, and then a bear market comes along and humbles all of us, and, and then people see the, the benefits of a diversification. So uh, it just, that, that's really my approach. What percent percentage do you have in foreign, in international versus domestic? In stocks. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got about a third of my portfolio is in foreign uh, equities and bonds. You also say that you're agnostic um, on active versus passive. You own both. The world has changed a lot. And the, you know, I mean, act, 
passive funds have really caught on tremendously. Your life has been dedicated to actually managed funds. So are you really agnostic or have you changed your mind about actively managed funds considering that they've, the vast majority continue to underperform the indexes? Well, you know, I think the same principles uh, apply for both active and passive. Uh -huh. In other words, either way, you need a good strategy, you need low fees, uh, you need competent management. I guess, yeah, I think to, to some degree, uh, maybe I've tilted a little more towards indexing, but I've always, I've always been a fan of indexing. Um, you know, it, back in the late 90s before ETFs came to the fore, it was really just Vanguard out there uh, promoting yes. indexing because mm -hmm. none of the brokers out there knew how to make any profit from selling index funds. Then along came ETFs and it's like, well, oh, I can get a commission on these just like stocks and all, all of a sudden things change. But you know, I think even then it was obvious that costs matter. And if you look at uh, cheap actively managed funds, you can find you know, a fund like a Vanguard Wellington or even a Dodge and Cox stock that are under 50 basis points. Yes, ETFs are a wonderful long-term investment. Um, and I kind of think of them as, it's like on the, on the front, they're uh, kind of this old fashioned bank with the great Greek pillar, you know, and uh, you can come in, but on the back end, they're a casino. You can, you can trade very niche ETFs all day long you know, like you're in Vegas, or you can buy these <laughs> low cost, broadly diversified ETFs and just hold on to them for 30 years. So, uh, you know, ETFs kind of magically have it both ways. Looking at your, uh, you know, your top 10 holdings again, I, I know that, uh, that you listed them according to the weight in the portfolio. So the largest weight is Vanguard Prime Cap Core. What is it about Vanguard Prime Cap Core that has made you give it the largest weighting? I own three different prime cap funds, unless you're, in case you're wondering how much I like prime cap. Uh, I've got one in my 401k, I've got one in a Roth IRA, and I have this taxable uh, fund. So uh, what I like about prime cap is they're just uh, very good growth investors. Some growth investors are kind of momentum investors. You talk to them, you hear a lot of buzzwords, and there may not be much beyond that. But prime cap goes very deep. PrimeCap is great at bringing in elite uh, investors and keeping them their, their whole careers. PrimeCap's kind of unusual in that when they go uh, out scouting to, to, to hire some new associates to their firm, they're not interested in how well they build their stock models or what their track record is. They just want to hire the smartest people, bring them in, and then just say, here, go to work. This is your industry. Figure it out yourself. Their, their track record is just outstanding. Let me ask you about some of the, the, the funds that you own that are not in the thrilling 33 uh, and, and also you know, are, are not the repeat parent pillars, which does not mean that their parents are not great companies. That's a different um, asset class. The PIMCO Total Return Fund. PIMCO Total Return is uh, a very good institutional fund. If you can get the institutional share class, it's a pretty good value, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't. Uh, necessarily qualify on my uh, test for being a minimum under 50,000. Um, but PIMCO, I think, is really elite when you think about uh, all of the tools they bring to bear uh, in fixed income investing. So right. they have 
great quantitative people. They have great sector specialists. They have great managers. They have great traders. All those are really important tools to have at a complicated bond fund like this. And so if you look under the hood at PIMCO total return, it's a complicated thing. There's bets on various foreign bonds. There might be currency bets. There's all sorts of derivatives going on in there. But at the end of the day, it's a firm that's very good at managing fixed income portfolios. Lately, it's reined in its bets a little bit. So performance has been kind of middle of the pack. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's a temporary thing. I don't think they're going to do that for the long haul. I'm going to ask you about a couple of more funds that are uh, that are not in the thrilling 33 and also that are very unusual and kind of, you know, uh, unique funds as well. One of them is Oakmark Select, uh, you know, which is managed by Bill Nygren, a very famous uh, fund manager. Uh, it had a very rough 2022. What's what's your thinking about uh, holding Oakmark Select for for the long term? Yeah, this is a fund that uh, I've owned for a very long time. And mm -hmm. as you imply, I think with any focused fund, you really have to be ready for ups and downs because uh, this is a fund and you can really see it. I think just look at the calendar year returns and you can see what's going on is the fund will put together like this year, it's having a great year. Mm -hmm. Last year had a terrible year, uh, you know, and, and but Bill Nygren is just a very good value investor who over the long haul has compounded returns uh, at a very high rate. He's a fairly flexible value investor. So there's a lot of different holdings that go in there. So you definitely have to understand that. So even though it's in large blend, it's a totally different animal from say, a uh, total stock market index fund, which has very reliable performance. This one's gonna have more ups and downs. And so you have to factor that in when you own it. Uh, you have to think this is a really long-term holding. I'm gonna own it. 10 years or more, otherwise it might not be the right fund for me. And the last one I'm going to mention is uh, one that we've, we've had on featured Charlie Dreyfus, and that's the Roy Special Equity Fund. And that is certainly a special fund. Uh, you've owned it for a long time too. Why? Yeah, you'd think with all the thousands of funds out there that there would be 10 versions of everything, but you know, I th there, there's really not many funds trying to do what Charlie Dreyfus and, and the rest of his team are doing, which is looking for clean accounting, clean balance sheets, uh, you know, reasonably placed companies with good cash flow. So operating all in that small value space. And that kind of clean accounting thing means they avoid blowups, but also accounting really comes to the fore in recessions and bear mm -hmm. markets. And so again, like in 2022, this fund lost a lot less than its peers because uh, that emphasis on accounting and balance sheets. And, and so I think it's a wonderful diversifier. If you've got some aggressive growth funds, a lot of large cap, this is a fund that's gonna behave differently. Uh, and that, there's a real value there. If you talk about what's the value add of active management, well, here's a, here's a great example. Uh, you know, uh, Charlie Dreyfus and the rest of his team really digging into the accounting uh, of, of all their companies to, to find out who's being a bit of a weasel or who's real, really <laughs> being honest and giving a fair accounting, and, and therefore you really can rely on those companies. Well, you just shared some of your, you know, your top 10 holdings, Russ, but we ask at the end of every wealth track, you know, if, if there is one investment we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, which you own, a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? If I had to pick just one, I, I might pick uh, 
something like uh, Dodge and Cox Global because I think global funds, they're not very appreciated, but again, it, it makes sense in a way, don't, don't you think, to uh, invest in the whole world so that a manager can find the best bank or the best uh, telecom or the best mm -hmm. uh, pharmaceutical company, regardless of where it is. Dodge and Cox has that, that ability. We've seen they're very well proven in both uh, U.S. and foreign. And so I, I think it's a, a really good fund. It's got low costs. We know that costs matter over the long haul. Uh, it's a firm. When you leave the firm, you have to sell your shares back in the firm. So what that tells me is Dodge and Cox isn't going to be sold to uh, some mediocre colossus and see mm -hmm. all of its talent run out the door. Uh, it, they've got a mechanism set up to ensure that it keeps going. And so if I had to go away from 10 years without looking at my portfolio, I'd still have a lot of confidence that that fund would keep doing its job and uh, keep earning me a nice return. Russ Kendall, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. It is really a treat to have you on. You're welcome. I had a great time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the close of every wealth chart, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is pay attention to mutual fund costs. Morningstar's extensive research has concluded that costs matter for both passive and active strategies. In a recent assessment of active versus passive funds performance in the 10-year period ending in 2022, it found that the cheapest funds succeeded more than twice as often as the priciest ones. A 36% success rate of beating the benchmark versus 16% for the most expensive funds. And the cheapest funds had a superior survival rate, 67% over the decade versus 59% for the most expensive funds. Costs matter, as the late great Jack Bogle, the king of low-cost index investing at Vanguard, told us, there is one certainty investors can count on. Quote, you get what you don't pay for. Next week, we will sit down with the incomparable Burt Malkiel celebrating the 50th anniversary of his investment classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, why it has stood the test of time. In this week's extra feature, Russ Kendall shares how inspiring Vanguard's Jack Vogel was to him and the Morningstar team. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a re-energizing weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.